Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, JF and I revisit our long-running and irregularly updated series on the 22 major arcana of the tarot. This is the first episode of the New Year, and New Year's has long been symbolized by an old man, Father Time, being succeeded by Baby New Year, wearing a diaper, sash, and top hat. An image of senescence and death on the one hand, and of flaming youth on the other. This composite image of death and birth, the old year and the new hinged together, was expressed also by the Roman god Janus, who gives his name to January, and faces both backward and forward. There is always a bit of ambivalence to the new year, I find, a tinge of sadness beneath the roar of New Year's partying, something of the old man quietly asserting himself against the drunken baby careening around and vomiting on the carpet. In the riot of new life, there is a little silent dark bit of death. So it is always at the beginnings and ends of things. And so we thought it appropriate to talk about the 13th card of the tarot, death. But as you will hear in this episode, traditional societies respected death enough not to call his name too boldly. So I will say no more about that august personage before the episode proper begins. But before it does, I have a couple of announcements. First of all, on January 31st, JF will be giving a talk as a part of the Last Tuesday Society's ongoing series of online lectures. The title is Towards a Philosophy of Magic, Weird Modernity and the Tenacity of Enchantment. Learn more and purchase tickets at lasttuesdaysociety.org or use the link in this episode's show notes at weirdstudies.com. And second, If you're in the Ottawa area next week, Weird Studies composer Pierre-Yves Martel and his new band Nascent Red will be performing at the Minotaur in Hull, Quebec, on Monday, January 23rd at 9pm. They will be performing music from Volumes 1 and 2 of Weird Studies, music from the podcast, as well as a number of new pieces. Pierre-Yves is doing a lot of new stuff with modular synthesizers, and he will be joined by Bernard Falaise on guitar and Olivier Fairfield on drums and synth. J.F. is not performing, but he will be in the audience, wearing a diaper, sash, and top hat. That doesn't have anything to do with the new year. It's just what he likes to wear. Okay, I think that's everything. Happy New Year, and thanks for joining Weird Studies as it begins its sixth year. On with the show. I am going to start off with an observation. I was looking at Rachel Pollock's Tarot Wisdom, which is one of the standard reference books in the tarot game, 
Excellent book, as is Pollock's other even better known book, though, except I don't own it and I can't remember the proper title, 78 Paths to Wisdom or something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Rachel Pollock writes about the death card. I always consult Pollock when we do one of these episodes because Tarot Wisdom is such a great gazetteer and collection of ideas about the cards from various traditions, not just the Tarot de Marseille, which is always what we seem to place the greatest emphasis on. Mm -hmm. And the death card seems to be the one card where the discussion is less, what does the card say in a reading, than how do you deal with the appearance of this card in a reading? Yeah. So the focus becomes meta, addressed not anymore to just casual interest in the tarot, but professional cardomancers for whom the death card is a major pain in the ass. Yeah. Because however much we all say, it's not about literal death, it's about transformation. Mm -hmm. It's the thing everybody always says about this card. Yeah, I want to talk about that. As much as we say that, at the same time, on some level, everybody knows, including Pollock, what this card means, primarily, is death. Yeah, exactly. Like, just death. <laughs> it couldn't be more uh, straightforward. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so then when you get that card, you have to figure out, even though, like, keep in mind, of course, every time you get the card, it doesn't mean that somebody has died or is going to die. No. However, to say that actual, literal, unmetaphorical death is one of the card's meanings is an understatement. I agree. And everybody knows it. And so when you get this card in a reading, more than any other card, more than the Tower, which is sort of the other famous terrible card to get in a reading, this card is the turd in the cosmic punch bowl. When you yeah. get this, no matter how experienced a card reader you are, there is going to be some little part of you that twinges and be like, oh shit. Yeah. You know that it doesn't necessarily mean death, but it could. And it it does, but that doesn't mean uh, a literal death, right? But it, but it does signify that uh, most concrete and yet most abstract of all objects, most real of all objects, events, whatever, which is death. And just the right. death rearing its head. It's like the end of um, Edgar Allan Poe's A Mask of the Red Death, right? Where uh, yes. it takes place during a plague and... This prince, Prospero, throws a ball, a masked ball for all of the elite in his fife or whatever. And everyone's gathered together in his palace and they're all ensconced, protected, castellated in this place, protecting themselves against the plague that rages out there in the world. And of course, at the end, the final masked, you know, mummer enters the ball and makes his way through the various rooms to the very end, the final room, the black room, I think, where there's a, a grandfather clock ticking away the time. And, and when people try to like grab this costumed stranger and tear his mask off, they see that there's nothing. It's a corpse underneath. And, and so death rearing its head anywhere is the equivalent of seeing that card land in a draw. I remember when I had frequent panic attacks that the best way of characterizing the sudden emergence of such a state, right, as anxiety was, it was the shadow of death, up like a pall of death fell on the room. That's how it feels, right? right? Yes. So yes, it, it doesn't necessarily mean 
when you're doing the tarot, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to physically die, but it is the sudden appearance of this absolute fact. That was the first thing yeah. we ever discussed on Weird Studies, right? In our Gavin yeah. Bosey episode, which is death, the reality of death. And that always throws a shadow on things. No matter how metaphorical yes. you want, you choose to, to make it, it's still a metaphor of that one thing that is the furthest thing from a metaphor ever. Yes, <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. And our metaphor-making competencies around death, it's impossible to banish the thought that they might all be a sophisticated form of whistling past the graveyard. Right. In the <laughs> Which is a great of the example of the great phrase that really gets yeah. to the point. Yeah. Yeah. Whistling past the graveyard. And Mask of the Red Death really confirms that because the whole story, the premise of the story, wonderful dreamlike story, mm -hmm. is the privilege and insouciance, the callousness of these ultra wealthy elites as you say, castellating themselves, locking themselves away in a pleasure palace, remote from the sufferings of the people whom the plague is ravaging. All of this, the whole premise of the story is about keeping death out and focusing on pleasures. Mm -hmm. You know, we eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But for right now, woohoo! Yeah. Right? The whole situation is consecrated to whistling past the graveyard and yet the one guest that cannot be turned away is death and it all right. comes undone at the end and there's a kind of fatal feeling of inevitability not just because it's a poe story but there's something about death the always banished the always metaphorized the always euphemized uh, yeah euphemized it is the thing around which we continually erect paper defenses. Yeah. And we know that they're all going to come crashing down because we know, and there's a funny line in Pollock's little essay on the death card. Uh, she talks about a friend of hers who laughs when people talk about the change in the death rate. It's like the death rate is the same as it has always been, one per person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Death just is perennially the card, either the real actual card or metaphorically the card that turns up in our life that has a kind of ineluctable, blunt signification, and yet that we will never be done erecting significations on simply because to simply stare at it, to stare straight into the empty eye sockets of that grinning skull is intolerable. And it's from there that the death card gains all of its metaphorical power or maybe its applicability on multiple scales and in multiple situations. Like Tomberg in the Meditation of the Tarot points out that death is intimately connected to sleep and forgetting. So in a sense, he's interpreting the death card as the arcanum of the, the principle of disappearance. And so you can see how the shadow of death haunts any instance where something held dear, something we identify with, something we rely on disappears, right? The, uh, something is taken out of our grasp and, and often in a draw, and this is something every tarot guide will, will tell you, is that often death will represent a major change, something falling away, something having to, to be let go of. There's, um, did you get a copy of this? I received this in the mail. It's fantastic. The Gnostic Tarot. No. Okay. It was addressed now to I'm both of jealous. us. I'm all jealous. No, no, no. It was to both of us. The author okay. sent it 
I guess he's in Canada, I believe. So yeah, he's in Canada and he sent it to me. Probably it was cheaper to send it to me. And uh, Weird Studies, a personal thank you for your inspiring podcast. So this is for both of us, but Aww, I'm just, I'm, I've nice. got my hands on it. I got this last year. It's called the Gnostic Tarot. It's just like one of those birthday presents or Christmas presents that my parents would get for the both of us, for my sister and yeah, me. Exactly. But, I knew, but I knew damn well it was actually for my sister. Like the time my dad got my brother and I a snowboard. <laughs> 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 and then we'd go skiing as a family. It was like, what the hell? So one of us would <laughs> ski and then we'd switch. And then, um, so if you want to find out more about the Gnostic Tarot, the author's name isn't in the book uh but really? i did find it no it's on the website is it a meditations on the tarot kind of like no it's its own and principled no dude you'll be even more jealous oh it came with a I don't deck want to be jealous oh, it came fuck. with a deck look at that shit and it's a beautiful deck no, um, i can tell but if you want to know more about it go to welkintarot.com w-e-l k-i-n tarot.com and Phil, when we meet up soon, I will make sure to have it with me so that you can at least look at it before I take it back. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm not such a cheap bastard. I can't just go and buy myself a copy. I think I might do that. Right. I enjoy collecting tarot decks, actually. It's a, I'm not much of a collector, but I do like buying uh, new new decks, new divination. Yeah, decks. I know. Anyway, I know. tell me about this deck or what, so, what, what it is that you're looking for here. So it's all these original paintings and his uh, painting for the death card is particularly, I found, uh, effective. It looks like a kind of like um, swirling miasma of partial figures, almost like a kind of, almost like, you know, at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the whirlwind in the arc is kind of sucking up all the Nazis and you, you have this shot of this, this kind of swirling cloud with all these Germans kind of caught up in it. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it looks a little bit like that, the card, and it's got this really kind of scary looking skull in it. And anyways, it's cool. But I just wanted to read this one little passage from his chapter on that card. Which kind of gets to the heart of what you were saying there. So he writes, Many of the human figures on the death card cling to whatever is at hand. To clutch at the familiar and safe in the face of danger is second nature, even when such panic and fear-induced desperation can contribute to pain and ruination, as when a drowning man pulls down with him anyone who tries to help. Humanity's great success is its ability to assess and make the changes necessary to evade peril. Yet, ironically, humanity is so loath to change, it does everything in its power to keep things as they are, regardless of how outmoded or detrimental. This dichotomy is one of the primary illnesses of modern man. As Jung said, quote, shrinking away from death is something unhealthy and abnormal which robs the second half of life of its purpose, end quote. Man is anxious to be sure, but the only sure thing in life is death, just as surely as surety itself is death. The death card entreats the querent to embrace letting go. And this is a fairly classic interpretation of the card. I think it's a true interpretation of the card. Absolutely. But it points to the, all the, the thousand, the million little deaths we live through every day. There's a wonderful moment in the Tomberg where he basically shows how death is interlaced with every moment of life. Our cells are constantly dying. Things are constantly falling out of our grasp. We forget much more than we retain. Uh, we're kind of like on in a kind of free fall in a world that is uh, maybe 
just as kind of like dark matter is 80% of the universe, whatever, 80% of life is just little tiny little deaths. Yeah. And coming to terms with that is kind of, I think, one of the messages of this card, maybe. Well, this is something that harkens back to the last episode we did in 22, which was on Sun's Life Metal. It often happens in this show that we record several episodes in a row and only after a while realize that all along we were developing a motif. We were working up a theme. And I feel like we've done that with death, that we did The Evil Dead, which of course is a rather lighthearted film, but nevertheless, it kind of got us around this subject. And then Life Metal, and now this. And in Life Metal, one thing that we talked about is how the very way you move from one musical event to another, from one, as I was trying to frame it, sort of sonic organism that is a groan in the, the petri dish of a single low tone, like mm -hmm. low guitar slash bass tone, and how the movement from one such entity to another with this grinding and crunching and clashing between the pitches is a kind of little death that what you see is the creation of a kind of sonic organism and then it's spectacular messy death but simultaneously the birth of something else yeah. birth wrenched out of death something that is very commonly said about death and obviously i'm going to <laughs> promulgate this point of view because it's a very zen point of view is the idea that birth and death are two sides of the same curve right one thing that uh, I think Crowley points out in his essay on the card is that the sinuous movement of a snake, you know, sort of moving side to side, that sort of sinuous curve, makes the snake a perfect symbol for the mysteries of life and death. Yeah. Because it is a single movement encompassing these two sides, the sinuous movement between two sides. And so getting back to the, the life metal thing, uh, one thing I said in that episode, it's so full of death and so full of life. Right. Necessarily, something that is full of death will also be full of life and vice versa. Mm -hmm. There's kind of no unsticking the one from the other. Yeah, totally. And so, yeah, it's a world of life and a world of death always is and cannot help but be, as death and life are the two cycles of the two-stroke motor of existence.
I mean, you see this on the Marseille card, right? Right. Where you have a skeletal figure with a scythe, a figure we're all familiar with, in the process of reaping a field where you get uh, shoots of grass growing, but also uh, body parts either coming out of the earth or just strewn about the earth. It depends how you want to interpret it. And this, of course, the, the symbol of the scythe, which we always associate with death, is also clearly a symbol of life. The scythe is the tool by which we turn, for example, wheat into bread. But the scythe, of course, is the cutting of the wheat that yes. signifies the death of the wheat, but then, of course, the beginning of something new. I just don't want to overemphasize the kind of cyclical thing, although I think it's absolutely true. What I mean is that sometimes when faced with something that connotes death, we get afraid. Fear accompanies the thought of death or the shadow mm -hmm. of death almost automatically. In fact, mm. automatically, I would say. Mm. And often the advice you get is, don't worry. No, no, it's just a change. It's just a ch But I think that until you feel that fear, you're not really facing you know, I think yeah. there's something impersonal in yep. the fear of death. The fear of death is part of the experience of death as it it's is. It's not your fear of death. It's, it's not, yeah. the fear it's, of death. It's the fear, like Garmin Bosia, right? But yeah. If we go back to that episode two, where we talked about, um, and you were developing this idea of the fear with a capital F, which is a kind of entity that- it Consumes Garmin Bosia. By extension, consumes the modern world after Hiroshima because it, it is in itself the kind of specter of a total extinction, a final death that not only does it end particular lives, it also ends any frame in which any of those lives ever really meant anything. It's like a total extinction that puts an end to exactly. everything. Exactly. That type of fear, that is not an illusion. That is not a failure- of interpretation on the part of a person. That is not a sign that yeah. one is not enlightened enough. I hate that. <laughs> that type of language is like, if you were really enlightened, you'd be like, I'm fine with death. Nobody is fine with death. If you think you're fine with death, you don't know what death is. Because death has, as part of its very genetic makeup, that fear. You can't see it without feeling it. That's something I believe anyways. Now, that doesn't yeah, mean that's, that's not the end of the story, because although I totally agree with you about the sinuousness of the serpent weaving in and out of death and life itself being a kind of weave work of life and death, I personally believe that there is a life beyond that horizontal intermingling of life and death. That is, uh, maybe you could, if you're a Buddhist, you might want to call it nirvana. If you're a Christian, you might want to call it illumination or paradise or whatever, a kind of vertical axis. And this is one of the things that Tomberg concentrates in his chapter. It's There's another way of interpreting those two concepts, life and death, that transcends the purely horizontal or circular frame, let's call it, of the serpent, where essentially you're in a kind of uroburo snake eating its own tail that never ends. That is, but that's not, it's not by saying that that Uruburo's circular serpentine interweaving of life and death is false. It's only by affirming the absolute truth of that, that maybe there's a way beyond it. You know? Yeah, I agree. That's exactly right. I mean, this is something that Shohaka Okamura, a Zen teacher of mine from years prior, once said, which I appreciate it. It's like, if anybody is feeling that mood of like, oh, I'm okay with death. I've, you know, glimpsed 
higher knowledge and, you know, death isn't what we think it is and blah, blah, blah. There is a certain amount of that in spiritual scenes. And you, you know, and it's an idea that certainly can come up in Zen practice. And Okamura was just sort of like, hey, you know, if I was on a plane that was like falling out of the sky, it was going down in flames, I would be screaming just like everybody else. And so probably would you. Yeah. And it's true. Uh, I think, I think that is true. I like the idea that fear is just a part of the deal. Yeah. I like that you were talking about some of the imagery of the card. And so I'm wondering if maybe we could look a little bit closer at some of the details of this card. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the illustration in Tonberg's, uh, or uh, we also like to call him our known friend. Oh shit, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's okay. We can use it interchangeably. We've doxed if we that just say, son of a bitch so many times at this point. No, we, I mean, everybody knows <laughs> I know. this book. It's more or less symbolic that we still make token attempts to say that it's by anonymous. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, I should point out that Valentin Tonberg was a Russian mystic originally uh, Eastern Orthodox, and then I think for a while an anthroposophist, and eventually a Catholic, but somebody who had wide learning in esoteric matters, who wrote an absolute masterpiece, stone masterpiece of hermeticism, of a kind of intellectual and philosophical hermeticism, Christian hermeticism called Meditations on the Tarot. And he insisted on publishing it without attribution because he wanted people to see the message of the book, not the author of the message of the book. And he addresses the reader of this book throughout as my unknown friend. And the 22 chapters of this book are letters addressed to an unknown friend. So jokingly, we refer to him as our known friend because everybody knows it was Tonberg. Anyway, I want to look at the card on 341 of the edition that I have, at any rate, which is my handsome hardback Angelico Press reissue of it. I think this is the only edition in English, so it'll be one 341 for everybody, because I have yeah, a soft cover, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, if we look at this card, one thing I want to point out is that it says death kind of alongside the card, not at the bottom or top, as one might expect. That alone is kind of an interesting detail of the death card of the tarot, of the Marseille tarot, at any rate. Later tarots invariably just refer to it as death. But many versions of the Marseille tarot, the name of the card was left off entirely. It was simply the number 13. Hmm. And so many in the French tarot tradition refer to it as la cansonome, which uh, means without a name. Yeah. Uh, my French pronunciation is bad enough that JF gave me this look like, I don't exactly know what you said, but I'm too polite to say <laughs> La anything. La carte sans nom. The nameless card. I like that. Yeah, the nameless card. Yeah. And so some versions of it then just sort of squished the word death along the side, almost like as if you were tiptoeing up to the dread import of this card, but you still can't quite bring yourself to say what it is front and center. So you're going to squeeze it in on the side. So yeah. that's the version of the card that we see in our known friends chapter on the card. What do you make of that, JF? Why do you suppose the earlier versions of this card would have omitted the mention of death altogether? Do you, does that suggest that the authors of this were just like ourselves, scared enough of the arcanum that we are approaching that they had to kind of like slip away into not euphemism, but repression? I, I think it's a fairly common feature of pre-modern societies that death was never named 
as or very rarely named mm. as such. And so hence the proliferation of euphemisms for talking about death. I mean, we have to realize that uh, death to us is a kind of a, a singular curiosity of life that we sometimes forget even exists. Uh, forgetting about the existence of death was literally impossible for anyone living before the Industrial Revolution. And I would say even before the 20th century, maybe before the, the First World War, maybe that's when it became possible to live and even forget for like more than an hour that death exists. The people who produced the Marseille deck lived in a world where death was something you saw every, every day, be it only in the slaughter of animals and the cries of slaughtered animals in every village. I mean, if you want chicken for dinner, you go out in the backyard, cut a head off of one of your chickens. Yeah, there was that. Then there was the fact that one out of four children didn't make it past their first year of life. And that's in the the better parts of this period. Um, One out of four women, I think, died in childbirth. Death was simply something that accompanied you. In preparation for this, I I reread Thomas Brown's Urn Burial, uh, which is a wonderful 17th century kind of meditation on death that Thomas Brown wrote after a a bunch of uh, Roman funeral urns were dug up in England. The cool thing is that it was around this time that people began to develop an interest in the past and digging up artifacts of the past, whether they be architectural like Stonehenge and and the the Roman ruins in England or like relics or artifacts they dig up from the earth. And in this case, Thomas Brown is reflecting on the funeral customs of the Romans. But then it's just a wonderful meditation on death coming from a man who lived in a time where death was simply a, a close companion to everybody living on earth. And yet there is this reluctance in these societies that are most closely connected to death to point at death and name it. Not because they can't deal with it. They dealt with it literally every day in a way that we can't even imagine, but because I don't to know why. To name is to invite. The, the name is to invite, but also there's a kind of pride, a prideful arrogance in naming something that is so, so vast, so big, and so, hmm. you know, and it's not to say that they'd never named it. I mean, it's named in every catholic mass the word death comes up many times um it's certainly something people were able to talk about yeah but there was a tendency to couch our words when it came to death and to approach this most intimate of things very obliquely and i think that's how that's you approach something sacred something special not something you you're repressing necessarily yeah we, however, have a problem with death. <laughs> oh, with, yeah. we do. And I <laughs> want to get to that. Actually, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about in this episode. I was listening to a boxing podcast and they're, you know, they're smart guys, but like, you know, they use the same phrase everybody does talking about old art, like art from before basically the 21st century or the late 20th century as the creation of dead white males. That's oh, a yeah. phrase we use all the time, right? And there's always an edge of mockery to that, that there's something contemptible about being a dead white male. What is truly contemptible about being a dead white male? I would argue that the real sting in that epithet is dead. It's not right. whiteness. It's not maleness. Mm. Ultimately, what we really can't forgive is death. You know, like fucking Goethe or Beethoven or whatever yeah. is being dead. Belonging to the dead. We hate death, but we hate the dead. We hate everything in death's province. We wish to, to, and this to 
borrow a Chestertonian line to deny the rights and privileges of our society to the dead, who after all belong to it. Yeah. And I think that Federico Campania's work technique and magic allows us to think in some detail why this should be. Death is the great other mm -hmm. to technic. That's the death, great, yeah, exactly. Qua death is truly the grinning death's head of nihility yeah. to technic. Technic can do nothing with death, can make nothing of it, and it is the great challenge to its dominion. But I'm not ready to go there yet. Mm. Okay. Conversationally. I wanted to put that on the table, okay. like playing a, a trump card. But before doing I'm that, chomping I chomping at the bit to... here. They got lots to say, but I'll wait. Oh, I know. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, you, you folks can't see this because we're, <laughs> we're on Zoom. But yeah, he's, he's like straining against his restraints, like gnashing his teeth. But before we go there, before we make the Death Guard disappear in a puff of socio-political abstraction, I want to stay close to the card itself and some of the details on the card. Okay. There's something that Hodorowsky says in his book on the tarot, and I am sort of inclined to agree with him. He's like, okay, we all, we're always told that the cards just kind of emerged out of folk culture. There's no author to the card. There's no grand plan. They're just a bunch of cards that have come down to us from the past. They were originally playing cards. And then some in the 18th century, some silly people that is such decided to start using them for cardomancy. Yes, it is bullshit. And one yeah. reason why it's bullshit, Hodorowsky points out, he's like, there are so many details in these cards that evidence such a profound level of thought and planning, it could not possibly have been erected by accident or happenstance. And the details in the death card, many of which Hodorowsky himself points out, the amount of insight you can get from just staring really hard at the details of the cards, I think lends credence to that. Mm -hmm. So one thing I would point out is that, okay, so one of the most salient features of this card is the black ground on which the yeah. figure of death, a skeleton with a scythe, is treading. And on the ground, we have body parts, bones, and also tufts of grass, leaves, mm -hmm. poking up out of the black loam. But the black loam, the black ground of the card is the most visually striking thing, this big bar of yeah. black at the bottom. It really makes the card stand out when you're just flipping through the deck that black yeah. uh, the black earth the black loam really strikes you yeah absolutely and if you look at the horizon the line between the sky and the earth the horizon line it is a sinuous s curve we were just talking about that but you could say well that's maybe that's an accident but like there are so many things about this like look carefully at the skeleton skull do you notice there's a moon a crescent moon all up in there yeah I see it. And this is another point that Hodo makes. Look at his eye. Is that not an Ouroboros? Oh, yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I never noticed that one. Yeah. It is. There's a book that I have been reading and getting a lot out of, Tarot and the Archetypal Journey, The Jungian Path from Darkness to Light by Sally Nichols. And this was originally published in 1980, I think, and has been uh, reissued. And I think this is a book full of wisdom. This is on page 233. To accept death like birth as a part of life is to become truly alive. 
Not wanting to live, said Jung, is synonymous with not wanting to die. Becoming and passing away are the same curve. Mm. Nice. And again, whoever does not accompany this curve remains suspended in the air and grows numb. From middle age on, only he remains alive who is willing to die with life. Okay, actually, that's a great line, but it wasn't the one I was looking for. Okay. Uh, but it does connect with some stuff that maybe we want to return to. I can't find it. There's somewhere, there's a great line about the heart, that at the heart of death is the heart, the human heart, love. And mm. I invite you to take a close look at the pelvis of the death card. Yeah. Right next to the that knot. It's, it almost looks like the spine, the base of the spine has been yeah, tied in a knot. Yeah, it's kind of the kundalini <laughs> kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Well, look right next to it. Do you see the little heart that's nestled in there in with the, the hashing? Like on its skirt? Because it's kind of wearing yeah. the skirt. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, definitely. There's a heart. Yeah. There are so many little details like this, like as you get deeper into this. Now, what these details mean, of course... We could have an endless series of conversations about it. These cards are infinitely interpretable, of course. One thing I want to point out particularly, look at the legs, look at the feet mm -hmm. of this skeleton. Did you notice that one of its legs, its left leg, just kind of ends? Like on our right. Yeah. The, the version I'm looking at here, I can see the foot. So I don't know what you mean by it just kind of, it looks like it's, like the version I'm looking at here has yeah in the in in the meditations on the tarot yeah okay I'm looking at a color uh, like a colored version let me just look at uh, the one in the meditations just a moment because some cards there's a foot and some there isn't oh okay some skeletons are complete and some are incomplete oh yeah right right this one that just ends. and and it took me a long time to notice it and the other foot is a foot it's not a skeleton it's a foot ass foot. Not only that, but there's a foot right next to his footless leg, and it looks like he just know. chopped his foot off. <laughs> or how about this? The figure in this card is actually putting himself together. It's actually coming together from bits and pieces of flesh. It's like a wonderful horror image, right? You could imagine this in a horror film, some kind of... In fact, I'm thinking of Stranger Things Season 3, where there's this eldritch beast that is putting it together from the tissue of all these organisms it assimilates. The classic is uh, Hellraiser. Yeah, and so that's as legible a meaning of this card as the other, which is, oh, it's using its scythe to break apart. It's also coming together. Anyway, sorry, tell me about Hellraiser. No, but it's all about that. This guy who's putting himself together slowly by feeding on blood and, and torment. Uh, he's just, you can see him through the film. He's getting more and more complete. At first, he's just like oh, a skeleton. I've never and seen silly. that film. It's a very good movie. But uh, yeah, I like it. That interpretation speaks in a very interesting way with Tomberg's uh, chapter, actually. I was seeing it as, it looks like a man who's flayed himself, is what one of my first reactions this time. Where yeah. the, the body parts you're seeing are just basically the, the, the husks of skin that he's shaved off his body. I guess, you know, when you're looking at these types of serpentine cyclical movements that can go either way. You could say he's putting right. himself back together. Or he's taking himself apart. It's kind of both at the same time. You know, you can make an argument that if you want to approach things from a kind of Jungian uh, or even Freudian perspective, you could say, well, the cards could have emerged as a just a parlor game kind of thing and still pack all this meaning because of the nature of the unconscious and because of the nature of archetypes and how they sure. conspire sure. to. But I guess that's neither here nor there. Either way, it is not a waste of our time 
uh, noticing these things and interpreting them. I agree with you on that for sure. I think that Indeed. everything in the tarot is intended and that's why it, it survives. What do you make of that? This idea of the skeleton putting himself together. I like the ambiguity and I like the possibility that what we're talking about is this kind of ambivalent, well, as you say, that serpentine motion. There's the, the living body flensing itself, tearing its flesh off, taking itself apart. Yeah. Solve. Yeah. In alchemical terms. And then there's also the implication of putting itself back together. Coagulate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And, and this gets back to what we were saying about this kind of like, you know, no death without life, no life without death. Death and life is the systole and diastole of existence itself. Right. Exactly. In meditations, our known friend, I'll stick to the, to the rule here, is very keen on distinguishing two axes on which death and life can be interpreted. One of which is the one we seem to be coming back to here, the idea that life and death are locked in an embrace, in a circular embrace, and then you never have one without the other. And then uh, another axis, which for Tomberg would be the vertical axis of the cross, which would point the way out to liberation outside of that. So very much in line with, I mean, a classical kind of Buddhist orientation, which would see samsara as a kind of circular serpent and nirvana as a kind of vertical axis that allows you to liberate yourself from that. Right. And Tomberg would, of course, attribute the commonalities between or similarities between this Buddhist way of seeing things and the Christian way as evidence of the kind of deep hermetic tradition that from which both of these religions, to which both of these religions belong. And um, what I like about it is that Tomberg orients his chapter in terms of Genesis. Again, he goes back to the serpent. And this is something we, this is a callback to our episodes on Blade Runner. And so he's talking about the moment where the serpent promises Eve immortality for eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat taste of this fruit, you will not experience death. You will be immortal. And Tomberg is very insistent that the serpent is not lying, right? That's the traditional dogmatic thing is the, si the serpent was a liar. He was fooling us. He's not lying. The serpent is giving us one means of immortality, which yeah. is very much present throughout the esoteric kind of tradition. It's the idea of it's making- It's the way of the serpent is what it it's is. It's the way of the serpent. It's the way of countering death by creating something that will, that will outlive you. So like yes. creating a kind of tulpa or ghost of yourself, like Gurdjieff. He brings up Gurdjieff as the one who really mastered this technique or really talked about this idea that you create a soul for yourself that will not die when your body dies. And so right. what the serpent promises is a type of immortality, but essentially it's a type of undeath. It's a defiance of death on the horizontal plane in which death and life are intertwined and inextricable from one another. Whereas the dove for Tomberg is not so much a way to counter or to beat death, but rather a way to incorporate death and life, that serpent, into a kind of vertical uh, axis that lifts you out of the entire kind of rigmarole of samsara. But what interests me in this is how he gives truth. He gives credence to the serpent's claim. And he says, this is amazing, this uh, passage here, I'll read you this quickly. On page 360 in Meditations on the Tarot, he writes, it is therefore not purely and simply a matter of an illusion in the case of the ideal and method of the construction of the Tower of Babel. Okay, so the construction of the Tower of Babel for him is 
that's the term he gives to this process of creating something for yourself that will be immortal, making yourself immortal, much like the Tower of Babel was trying to reproduce kind of heaven on earth kind of thing. It's like transcending this world by means of this world. So you're still in the on the horizontal plane. You're trying to create something that beats death. Rather, he goes on, it is a matter of another kind of immortality. He's talking here about the serpent, notably that which the serpent of Genesis had in mind when he said, you will not die if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil produces the inner friction in man of the struggle between yes and no. And this friction, in its turn, produces the electrical fire which affects the crystallization whose product will resist death. This is the meaning of the promise, or rather the program of the serpent. This program underlies the millennia-old method of the construction of the Tower of Babel, and it constitutes the esoteric kernel or hidden secret of materialistic science in general. Right. What he means is that, yeah, it's a, a means of attaining immortality on the very terms of life and death. So you can trace it in all kinds of esoteric practices that involved soul creation or tulpa creation of, uh, or lichdom, like taking elixirs to make your body outlive uh, you know, the normal span of a human life, or by extension, all these materialistic scientific ways we have now of extending life, of banishing death, of castellating ourselves, of trying to transform the world such that death has no dominion anymore. Right. He's not like, that's hopeless. No, you can do that. But I guess ultimately it's hopeless because even if you live three trillion years, the heat death of the universe is not something you're going to build a machine against or like some technology. <laughs> so ultimately you will have to face at some point the absolute nature of death. So it's not for Tomberg or for Buddha or for Christ, the actual solution to the problem. But it's, it's certainly, I love the way that he doesn't uh, just deny that. Uh, I don't know. He gives it its place. I'm very glad that, our conversation has gone this direction. What Tonberg calls this is, uh, and just using Gurdjieff's word for it, is crystallization. He quotes Gurdjieff, and this is on page 355, where he's talking about how dust returns to dust. In order to speak of any kind of future life, there must be a certain crystallization. This is Gurdjieff, um, or actually... It's Uspensky. Uspensky yeah. relating yeah. Uh, the teachings of Gurdjieff. In order to be able to speak of any kind of future life, there must be a certain crystallization, a certain fusion of man's inner qualities, a certain independence of external influences. In other words, you have to create, you have to crystallize, condense down the aspects of your personality into some kind of... It's almost like the Horcruxes in Harry Potter. I don't know if you ever read no. any of those stories. Like the idea of a magical object that bears the soul of its creator. Kind of like a homunculus that... in a way. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just going for a reference I know, but yeah, you, you yeah. create a kind of... Like uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, liches create phylacteries in which they put their souls. And as long as that phylactery is, is intact, they can't die. So you, you offload your life essence into something that outlives you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. And Spensky continues, but even if something survives, its future can be very varied. In certain cases of fuller crystallization, what people call reincarnation may be possible after death, and in other cases, what people call existence on the other side. In both cases, it is the continuation of life in the astral body or with the help of the astral body. And so just jumping out a couple of sentences, 
he writes, what may be called the astral body is obtained by means of fusion, that is, by means of terribly hard inner work and struggle. Man is not born with it, and only a very few men acquire an astral body. And so the idea is that an astral body is like a project. It's a job of work. So Deleuzian, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it reminds me of what Federico Campania says, that under the regime of technique, human beings become processors. Yeah. Little sites of production where you take inputs and you work your transformations, a kind of combinatorial process mm -hmm. of transformation upon those elements, and you produce things. And in this case, we are simply taking that logic of production, the human being producing their own kind of lifeboat self yeah. that can resist death. And it is an empty and idle promise. And yet, it's all we got. Under Technic, that's all we got. Yeah. Reading that Gurdjieff, or listening to you read that Uspensky passage on Gurdjieff's teachings, I'm not very familiar with Gurdjieff. The, the parallels with Deleuze's idea of the body without organs and the need to create oneself a body without organs. And that whole idea that through, uh, in Deleuze's philosophy, it's through intense violence, intense struggle and pressure. That's how crystals are formed in nature, right? Yes. Uh, the crystal is a result of the most, of the most violent processes you can imagine. That's how you create something that lives on, that, that continues. Yeah. It seems important to me that the idea is like you have to work really, really hard at it to create a kind of heat, a kind of heat of friction. Electricity. In order yeah. to affect this, yeah, to affect this crystallization. Work really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> be a really good processor and make your death. Well, make your undeath, right? Yeah, make, I, make your undeath. Yeah. So it's beautiful because it, it does work. And he's very, um, after he quotes that passage, he says, I'm not dissing on Gurdjieff here. He's like, he's no, right. he's quite respectful he's the best. of Gurdjieff. He says he's, the, he's simply the best representative of materialism we have. He basically distilled mm -hmm. it down and he shows us how materialism, far from having eschewed all things esoteric, is essentially a type of esoteric path aiming for immortality. And whether that immortality takes the form of some transhumanist technology that will give us new bodies or uh, a kind of uh, tantric practice of creating a kind of like other body for yourself, vehicle for your perpetuation in the astral realm. This is technology. Yeah? Yeah. This is the esoteric understood as technology, therefore as technic. Yes. And it's yeah. very much opposed to what Tomberg wants to promulgate, which would be more something like a kind of like uh, acceptance of death that would entail a kind of transcendence of the whole struggle, right? That there is no struggle. Mm -hmm. As Alan Chapman said recently, you know, the message on the cross is nothing is asked of you, my son. You know, you can just fall into a kind of, like you already have an astral body. You don't need to create one for yourself. Yeah. It's just, yeah. so I find a lot of romantic kind of attraction to this kind of Gurdjieff slash Deleuzian slash kind of alchemical self-creation uh, that he's pointing to, the, the way of the serpent of immortality. I find that very compelling even though I do agree with him that it is futile, ultimately, if only because of the absolute nature of the death symbol, as we were discussing it er earlier, which is basically death is just simply the most concrete fact of all things that things end. doesn't matter how long you live, death comes. At, you're always a newborn when you face death. Yeah. You might as well just have existed for a second. Um, yeah. There's a wonderful yeah. passage I wanted to read you from 
Brian George's book. I think you have a copy mm. of this. Um, I do. Yeah, Masks of Origin, which is uh, an amazing book of bizarre uh, and enlightening essays by Brian George, who's, uh, you know, truth be told, is uh, someone I've been corresponding with for a few years. He's a wonderful writer. And um, yeah, Untimely Books, uh, this is the mm. publisher that released my uh, thing on Stranger Things, published this last year. And there's this great essay he wrote on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he's remembering 1962 when he was a boy and he experienced this crisis, which made him aware of, you know, in his own childlike way at the time, but now today with on a whole other level, made him aware of the absolutely revolutionary significance of the nuclear bomb and its implications. He kind of does something very close to what Tomberg's doing, which is that it is only by embracing the reality of death and the inevitability of death, giving up all uh, aspirations to beat it at its own game, to transgress against it, to defy it, embracing it as it is that a kind of immortality then presents itself, which is on a totally different axis. He writes, quote, it was the 14th of October, 1962, and the doomsday clock was reading at 12 minutes before 12. As we made our way to school with our book bags on our shoulders, we could hear the newly fallen leaves crunch underfoot, like the bones of ancient warriors, like the husks of derelict gods. And we were struck dumb by the wonderful stillness of the moment. The beauty of the flame-like foliage was a harbinger of the descent of actual flame. The gentle falling of the leaves was perhaps a prelude to the imminent vaporization of our bodies and to the gentle descent of our ashes through the air. Mm, that's lovely. And just the way he writes that, to me, this like total affirmation of impermanence, the ultimate irony of the modern project is that all of our genius has produced the most tangible symbol of impermanence you could imagine, which is, of course, the nuclear bomb. In that, there's a kind of immortality that is available only to those who come to terms with impermanence. Yeah. Yeah.
just to change the subject a little bit from death to the dead and living with the dead, one thing I often like to say is that I am quite comfortable in the company of the dead. I spend lots of time in the company of the dead. As an academic musicologist, I, you know, I teach music by dead white males mm -hmm. and women, but let's be real. The vast majority of music written before the 20th century was by men. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, the whiteness and the maleness ultimately is less of an affront to contemporary sensibilities than the deadness. <laughs> the affrontery that these men have for being dead. Like, how fucking dare they? <laughs> but I like the company of the dead, and not only because they tend to make quiet neighbors. There's a lot to be said for doing research on someone who's dead and getting to know them intimately. To have a relationship with the dead is kind of a... It's a special thing. It can be a very profound thing. Okay, I'll tell you something that I, it's a, a seemingly a um, change of subject, but it isn't. One thing that I do at home, I have an altar set up in my house. And on the shelf below the altar, and sort of part of the overall altar structure, is uh, a couple of family pictures. A photo of my dad, who died about 20 years ago, actually a little more than 20 years ago, and a photo of... Uh, my wife's Nana was like a grandmother who was, she was very close to. And whenever, not whenever, I sometimes forget to do this, but very often when we're getting together as a family, watching a movie together, when we're just like kicking back as a family and having fun, I will light a stick of incense mm. over in front of these photos. And I pay respect to the ancestors. And the, my dad and my wife's grandmother are... Of course, we think about them, but they're also stand-in for the endless massed ranks of the dead that stand behind them. All of those family members that I don't know about. We in the West are incredibly bad at remembering who our families are. Yeah. And I remember when I was very interested in human memory, one thing I read was about members of, uh, as I like to say sometimes, a-modern societies. Mm -hmm. sometimes called primitive societies or traditional societies, societies that are still close to their traditional experience and have not been completely modernized. How such societies, for example, the indigenous peoples of Australia apparently have a notion like this, that your job is to remember your family, your begats. You know, so-and-so begat my parents, and so-and-so begat them, and so-and-so begat them. That if you can't remember that shit out to nine generations, you're like a fucking moron. Yeah. <laughs> like, everybody can remember that shit. And, like, among the, all the people you know, I ask my listeners, who among you... Have you ever met anybody who can do that, right? We don't really know the dead. And I am aware of this in myself, that I am a typical modern... But at the same time, even doing that little thing, lighting a stick of incense, making the odd offering to the dead, to my family, my ancestors, the ones I know and the ones I don't, it feels right to me. Mm -hmm. In moments like that, I am including the dead and family. And you might be listening to this, dear listener, and thinking, that sounds incredibly stupid. What a weird thing to do. Fine. Whatever. You do you. All I can say is that for me, is actually a very deep practice. I connect with it emotionally. And to get back to thinking about doing scholarship on deceased figures, 
you form relationships with them too. Oh, yeah. The more you put your thoughts, you devote or donate your thoughts, your attention, your cognitive energy to the dead, the more you have a real and non-metaphorical relationship with them. And I will give you an example. The last chapter of my book, Dig, is about a rather obscure jazz musician, composer, arranger, polymath, interesting dude named John Benson Brooks. And I got to know Brooks through, I mean, he died in 1999, and I got to know him through the very large collection of his papers that's held at the Institute of Jazz Studies at Rutgers Newark, which I spent several summers going out to visit my friend John Howland when he worked out there, spending time doing research in the Benson Brooks archives. And as I was writing that last chapter, which leaned heavily on biography. I wanted to write a good biography of Benson Brooks. And I was going on, you know, just paper. I was just going on written records on his notebooks and various documents I was able to find. And yet the deeper I got into studying these things and reading them and really turning them over in the mind, the more I felt like I knew this guy. I would have dreams where I would talk to him and ask him questions. Yeah, And you know, I had a relationship with him. And one of the greatest moments in my life as a scholar was discovering, A, that his wife, Peggy, was still alive. And B, when I went out to visit her in New York City, I had sent her a draft of my chapter, which was very much as it was eventually published. And I was worried. I didn't know John Benson Brooks. And of course she did. She was the person who was closest to him in life. And I really wanted to have done him justice. And I was very painfully aware that I had only a paper acquaintance with him, not a real relationship with him. And yet almost the first thing that Peggy said when I walked into her apartment was that when she read my chapter, she felt that it had been written by a close friend of his, that she was reading a reminiscence of one of his friends. And that made me very proud. Wow. Yeah. But it's also, I think, a testament. It's like you have, and I remember Lewis Lockwood, a mu great musicologist who teaches at Harvard, who wrote a biography of Beethoven saying something similar. He's like, he lived with Beethoven for years. After a while, he sort of felt like, well, we have no documents telling us what Beethoven would have thought about this or that, some piece of writing, for example, that had been published or whatever. He said, but after a while, I kind of felt like I kind of knew what he would think about it because yeah. I knew him. And a lot of scholars would listen to that and snort and think that that's just you kidding yourself. But I don't think it is. No. I think you do form real unmetaphorical relationships with the dead. There's a marvelous chapter in a book called Baccarini's Body by Elizabeth Le Guin, daughter of Ursula Le Guin, by the way, and a marvelous musicologist and writer in her own right, basically arguing this in great detail, how she has a non-metaphorical relationship with Baccarini. I feel like one of the things that makes it really hard for people to understand the past, to listen to old music, to approach the art, the novels, poetry, music, etc. of the past, is that they don't believe that they can form a relationship with these artists. And perhaps because they don't think that they can form a relationship with the dead at yeah. all. That the dead remain forever scary strangers, whereas in fact they're cheating themselves out of some of the best relationships they could have. The dead are not dead at all in a certain way, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what the evil dead is all about. It's like nothing, <laughs> yeah, nothing true. is really dead. I, I love what you're saying. And I, I have my own example, I won't get into it, but my own examples of of that sort of um uh I, calling it a parasocial relationship feels wrong because it's so much more intimate than that. There's a difference between admiring 
a living person greatly and feeling like you're very close to them because you've read all their books or because you listen to their podcast or their music or whatever. And this sort of relationship that you cultivate with the dead, I think there's a difference there mm-hmm. because the dead, uh, since they're dead, are not, are, they are non-local. Yeah. Their presence has become kind of distributed. And, and it's that's not right. just people who've left writings behind. Of course, that's the way a scholar or a reader would access the dead. But right. there are strange ways in which the dead come to us. Uh, what we call, you know, a house could be like that wonderful poem by Wallace Stevens, a postcard from the volcano. Is that the one? Where he's talking about a house containing in itself the presence of those who live there and who've passed on, who's, whose physical presence is now nothing more than some bones strewn in the yard. Like there's still something there. The dead are constantly with us. This is one of the great, great passages you you referred to it earlier in Chesterton's book Orthodoxy his great defense of tradition he's like I'm a progressive person I'm a liberal he calls it at that time he's like I'm a liberal but I believe in tradition because traditions are the votes of the dead you, you know, we might choose to outvote them on an issue we always have the right to do that too nevertheless our very language the words we use to communicate with one another are the relics of the dead. We didn't invent the language we use. We inherited this language. We use these words, these words whose etymological depths are so deep. If you start looking at the root into the roots of language and what words mean, this is basically what's been bequeathed to us. And this ridiculous notion that we can cut ourselves off from the past as though it never happened is basically like, uh, that's our ticket to extinction. You know, like, uh, and that's what yeah. uh, the author of Gnostic and Gnostic Tarot was saying earlier. Another thing about death is to insist on a hard line between the living and the dead, as is our want today, is dangerous in another way because it tends to encourage us to think of death as a kind of binary, as a kind of category, uh, a, 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 almost a digital category that applies yes. only in particular instances. Whereas death, as we were saying, is not only is it interlaced, interwoven with life at every point, uh, but even physical death is a lot less categorical than we usually think of it. For example, Matt Carden, when he was on last time, was talking about the time he, he was working in a hospice and how some of the caregivers there were telling him that death is a lot more stretched out, a lot more phased than we tend to think of it. Someone mm. close to me and my family is, is reaching a kind of end of life situation now. And I'm seeing this. I'm seeing how she's a little bit already a little bit gone. Not gone, like not physically gone. Physically, she's there. She's still able to communicate. But you can see that she's look, her horizon has changed. She's looking elsewhere. She's experiencing things on a, on a different level. We can decide to kind of uh, trivialize that by talking about hallucinations or psychosis or whatever. But that's not what her experience is. Right. Her experience is purgatory. Mm. She's dealing with stuff. She's working on things. And to enable a kind of, I think, a healthier, more nuanced, more honest, more courageous view of death allows us to see how death begins long before the moment this heart stops beating. In fact, we're yeah. all experiencing it a little bit already right now. And the sooner we get comfortable with that, the sooner we can look at that death card and just accept its presence on, in the draw, maybe, you know, yeah. the better we can deal with it. 
Well, to that end, perhaps we can do a little bit of thinking about like something you said at the beginning of this conversation, earlier in this conversation, how we're facing death all the time. Yeah. And we find ourselves looping back to it now. And, you know, that's implicit in what I was talking about with little musical organisms of son's life metal. We are attendant at death and birth simultaneously, constantly throughout that album. What are some maybe less dramatic, not really to do with the cessation of life versions of death, but maybe death of relationships, death of jobs. How is death encountered in more, I don't want to say low stakes contexts. At different scales, yeah. The death of a marriage, for example, feels pretty much about as bad as like physical death, I think, for people who've gone through divorce. But maybe we can think a little bit about how death hides out in even very ordinary and commonplace situations. Mm. Like that feeling of cessation. I'll put, okay, I'll put it another way. I'll sort of turn it around. One problem I had with the tarot when I first started playing around with the tarot was feeling like that a lot of the cards kind of duplicate each other. Mm. And one of the thoughts I had is like, why do you need both a tower card and a death card? Mm -hmm. Because people use them the same way. Oh, transformation. Right. <laughs> right? Right. You know, you knock down the tower and build something else, or, you know, death comes for you, but clears the ground with a scythe, new things grow up out of the ground. Everybody says that. Well, it's the same fucking interpretation. So like, mm, yeah. so why do you need both cards? And to me, there's something in the feel of death. When we say death, even when we're using it metaphorically to talk about the death of one's hopes or whatever, there's a kind of a death feeling, a death-like feeling. Mm -hmm. There's a, an affect that is proper to death of irrevocable, unarguable, tough shit kind of finality. But also there's something intensive about death, whereas the tower to me feels extensive. You know, the lightning coming out from outside or coming. Yeah, there's something like to me, disaster or catastrophe, you know, that which the tower connotes, the crumbling, the destruction even, is not the same feel as death. Death comes from inside. Death is the, mm, the expiration nice. of something. It's that cord, that power cord dying because it because it's a power cord. It's yeah. not that power cord dying because somebody, you know, went on stage and took an axe. Like, what's his name? That folk dude who, like, cut Bob Dylan's uh, cable. Oh, when he was I think it was Alan Lomax, but apparently yeah. that didn't really happen. It wasn't Lomax. It was, was, it it was, Lomax, um, or? It was the other guy there that oh, I can't remember his name. Somebody will remind us. Point is that it's not like somebody pulled your cable. So suddenly your power cord yeah. just sounds like a shitty little electric guitar playing without an amp. It's that <laughs> the power cord ends of its own accord. Death to me is the intensive self-exploration of saying. something. Yeah. Whereas the destruction comes from outside. That doesn't um, counter what you're saying. I think that uh, I had the same uh, issue with the tarot. And in fact, the tarot to me, my problem with it as a divination tool is that I never seem to really know enough about it to make it work. I always feel like I have to do more <laughs> research before I start using it. Uh, and just this thought right now that I just expressed, just I, I just had it because of what you said before. So this is one of the things that makes this series on the tarot so interesting for me is that in every show we do on the tarot, I feel like I've learned a lot more than I've been able to, you know, dispense in terms of my own yeah. uh, ideas. I always feel the same way. But yeah, I guess I, 
I'm sort of thinking about like, okay, I like this idea that is intensive. Is that true even if somebody kills you? Well, or like you get run down by a drunk driver or something? There's definitely a, an imposed from without catastrophe aspect to that. I, I would, yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, they're, they're obviously closely connected, but I think there's a distinction to be made between someone shooting you. Someone can't kill you. What they can do is damage your body and hope you die. Like, look at Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> you know they, how many times did they have to kill them all, all you can do is you know like some say they're still trying to kill them <laughs> thing is i can shoot you with a gun but i can't killing is a is, is abstraction it's just what happens when i chop your head off you die right I, there's a difference there there's this i mean sometimes the tower amounts to death yes it's true yeah you don't want to get those two cards side by side in a reading you know, that would be yeah that would be that would, that would put the wind up you i would I just think even even yeah. the most positive cardomancer would be yeah. at some pains to try and put a happy face on that reading yeah i would quickly if i were my own i would just quickly just put the deck away and pretend that never happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but there is something, and I'm not sure I can even put it in words, but there is something about death. I guess put it this way, one way I would rephrase what you just said is that the techniques of death, gun, poison, yeah. car, whatever. Rope, candlestick. <laughs> what is it? Rope, candlestick, revolver, monkey wrench. Poisonous sea slug. I'm listing the things in Clue. You know, the board game? I know. I oh, was okay. just trying to act like they have a poisonous sea slug in Clue. <laughs> Colonel Mustard in the library with a poisonous sea slug. Oh, that's good. The technique is one thing, but the event of death is always an inner thing. Yeah. And yeah, somebody can perform some technique of death upon you, but the death is yours and yours alone. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.